William Gibson's powerfully influential neuromancer reshaped his genre. The New Yorker recently called him the authority on the world to come, and the writer who imagined the near future more convincingly than anyone else. Now, William Gibson asked in his latest novel, Agency, what if the last three years had unfolded completely differently? What if we weren't the ones deciding our future? William Gibson's new book, Agency, is available now wherever books are sold. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So this week, we're talking with Garth Greenwell, whose new book is called Cleanness. And I thought this was a book of stories. You thought this was a novel. Yeah, we had very different reading experiences of the same book because I was completely convinced it was a novel, as Garth calls it, a book of fiction. Right. Though it might not actually even be that either, if you think about it. (laughs) There's some some autobiographical aspect. That's called autofiction, if you didn't know. That's true. I I did know. Thanks, Kate. Yeah. Well, um, I can't teach you anything. But yeah, it's, (laughs) it's funny. I consider myself, you know, not like open to form and experimentation and, um, but because of my expectations about stories, uh, which the book lived up to, that conventional short stories should have this kind of pressure and this epiphanic moment and that they, the story should kind of yield after that and release, mm-hmm. which a lot of these episodes have that structure. So I thought I was reading short stories and you thought you were reading a novel because why? Because of the coherence of the book, I would say, and also that there's a, this through line in all of the stories of themes you know, I think much of what it seems like the book is about is forms of power and ways of inhabiting a body, which are very vague. Uh, that's maybe too abstract, but, and I could see that happening in, in all of the chapters. And so, and the chapters are radically different from each other. There's a chapter with a meeting between a student and a teacher. And then the following chapter is a very intense, long S&M encounter. But you could see the same things appearing in each chapter. Mm-hmm. Some of the same themes. Yes. Yeah, I really enjoyed this book, and Garth is such an eloquent speaker as well as writer. So, very much so. Yeah. So let's listen to him. Wonderful. We are talking to Garth Greenwell today. Garth is the author of What Belongs to You, which is a fantastic novel. It won the British Book Award for debut of the year when it came out. It was long-listed for National Book Award. It was a finalist for six other awards, including the Penn Faulkner and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. His work and his fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and A Public Space. And he has written nonfiction for The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and Harper's Magazine. His latest book is a book of fiction. It's called Cleanness. And... Garth is joining us today from Iowa City. Is that right, Garth? That's right. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I'm interested to talk more about the form, which we just kind of skirted in the introduction a little bit. And I thought that I was reading a book of stories here, but perhaps there's something in between stories and a novel, but we can go back to that. But the book takes place in Sofia, Bulgaria, and it's set about a decade ago if I'm right. So I was just wondering if you could set the scene for us a little bit. I don't know how much things have changed in Bulgaria in the last 10 years, but talk about 
the time you're writing about in the country and the kind of atmosphere of the city at that time? Sure. So the time covered by What Belongs to You and Cleanness roughly is the same as the time that I spent in Sofia. I lived there from 2009 to 2013. I spent those four years, like my narrator, teaching high school. When I arrived in 2009, so it was just as the financial crisis hit. In 2007, Bulgaria joined the EU, and that was a cause of great celebration and hopefulness among much of the country. And then in 2008, of course, the financial crisis hit, and there was a sense kind of already settling into Sophia, when I arrived, that these grand promises of the EU, much like the grand promises of democracy in 1989, were going to prove to be empty, or at least that membership in the EU for a country like Bulgaria and a country like Romania, they entered the EU at the same time. I think many people, some people might sort of date the beginning of Brexit to the moment when these two sort of step-siblings of Europe were admitted to the EU in a kind of secondary class citizen way so that my students were EU citizens, but they did not have the right of free travel. They were not part of the Schengen zone. They did not have the same currency. And then my students who went to the UK for school found just how much xenophobia there was in the UK and how much animus there was against especially people from these quote-unquote Eastern European countries who were now showing up in Britain and quote-unquote taking jobs. So it was a difficult time when I arrived and I would say that in some ways things just got more difficult and one of the things that's explored in cleanness were an extraordinary moment and again a kind of very hopeful moment born of desperation in late 2012 and 2013 there were enormous street protests in Sofia against a politics of austerity against sort of rampant corruption in the government and so at the moment when I left it did feel that Bulgaria was well on the kind of precipice that you know, I feel like my own country is on right now, where there was an enormously energized movement for change. And then there was also the sense of kind of impending catastrophe. And what brought you to Bulgaria at that time? So a job. The big decision I made was in 2006, I quit a PhD program halfway through. I was studying English literature it became clear to me that the life of an academic wasn't the life I wanted. And I started teaching high school in Ann Arbor. I spent three years teaching high school in Ann Arbor and was surprised by the intensity of love I felt for my students and by the intensity of kind of satisfaction and fulfillment I got from the job. After three years, when I was sure I didn't want to complete my PhD, I had always wanted to live abroad. I had never even been abroad until I started teaching high school. After my first year, I chaperoned a group of students to France in the summer, um, which was my first experience of Europe. So I contacted the placement agency, told them I wanted a job in Europe, and there were two job possibilities, one of them at a very elite, ritzy Swiss boarding school in the Alps, and the other one at the American College of Sofia in Bulgaria. 
I think before that point, I probably, like a lot of Americans and very much to my shame, could not have even pointed to Bulgaria on the map. But I researched the school, found out what a kind of fascinating institution it is and the quality of students I would be working with there. And I decided that would be the more fulfilling teaching experience and took the leap. Something I really love about the book is the way that that we learn about the profession of teaching from the narrator's perspective and, you know, his empathy for his students is really clear, but he keeps on coming up with students who are seeming to want direction from him that he can't really give. The story opens with the narrator meeting with one of his students in a cafe and they're talking and the student is telling him this story of basically being in love with his best friend and being rejected. It's surprising how tense this exchange is because the narrator, of course, is relating to a lot of what his student is telling him and it's clear how much the student wants something from him, if only for him to kind of solve this problem that's unsolvable. Right. And he can't. That kind of exchange echoes a lot throughout the book. And I felt like as someone who hasn't taught much, I suddenly understood, oh, teachers don't really... A lot of the responsibility that's endowed to teachers is something that might be incredibly uncomfortable for them. Right. So I wondered if you could talk about that. And I know that you're a professor now as well. And if that's something that you've just kind of found throughout your experience teaching, or was this also something of being the kind of foreigner who would have seemed to have even more kind of authority and perspective, let's say, because you are not, you know, Bulgarian? Well, so first of all, please call the book whatever you want to call it. (laughs) I am very happy, and it's been interesting to see how the book has been talked about. People talk about it as a novel, and that's fine with me. People talk about it as a book of short stories. That's fine with me. I'm grateful to FSG for letting me put it out just as a work of fiction without that sort of marker of genre. And my own model for it is actually drawn from music, which was my first education in art. You know, I spend a lot of time singing like leader cycles, German art song cycles. And my model for the book is a kind of song cycle, something like Schubert's Winterreise. But that's just in my own, you know, sort of pretentious idealizing head. Um, (laughs) And I'm happy for people to talk about it however they want. And then about teaching. So one of the things that felt necessary when writing What Belongs to You, and cleanness is not a sequel or a prequel The books stand independently, but they do intermingle. They cover the same years. There are characters that pass between them. The narrator is the same between the two books. But one of the earliest things I knew about What Belongs to was that it was a very streamlined container, that this narrative of an obsessive relationship had to be kind of obsessively, even claustrophobically focused. And I knew that the world I was writing about and writing into was bigger than that container. And that was okay. Like I could bear that because I knew there was going to be this other container. And the earliest pieces that were written of cleanness before I knew it was a book, and they're not the earliest pieces, you know, they're not the first chapters in the book, but they were written while I was working on What Belongs to You. I would finish a big section of the novel and then write one of these shorter pieces. And one of the things that I knew I needed fiction to think about was what teaching is and my experience of teaching and especially of working with young people for seven years 
And one of the surprises to me in Ann Arbor, and one of the things that made me love teaching, but that also made teaching really difficult and really kind of taxing of emotional resources in a way that made, for me, my limit was seven years. I mean, I could not have continued to be a good teacher after that point. What did that was just how eager students were to sort of have their teacher be a kind of counselor to confess things, to ask for advice, to have an adult who is in a position of authority but is not a parent. And so that authority is not as maybe as sort of radically vexed as it can be between, you know, children and their parents. It was a huge surprise to me that my students were so eager to tell me about their lives. Mm. And then in Bulgaria, that was slightly modulated because the distance between teacher and student in Bulgaria is bigger than it is in America. Sort of the office of teacher, at least when I was there, and culture changes very fast, but when I was there from 2009 to 2013, the office of teacher felt like it carried more kind of authority in and of itself. But against that was the fact that I was the only openly queer person in my school community, and I was the only openly queer person that almost any of my students had ever met in real life. Mm -hmm. And that meant that queer students came to talk to me. And I did feel, as they came to talk to me, that a kind of claim was being laid or that a kind of responsibility, you know, was being demanded of me that sometimes, and that, you know, it felt like a privilege, and I was very much aware of the extent to which my Americanness allowed me that privilege. I mean, the very fact that I had an American contract, that my contract was governed by the laws of Massachusetts, mm -hmm. meant that I had protections that my Bulgarian colleagues didn't have. And there were Bulgarian queer members of the faculty. And, you know, they would tell me, if we come out, we'll be fired. And I think they were right. But I had these protections. And so I was aware of that as a privilege, but it was also a demand. Mm -hmm. And in order to write about things that feel to me kind of endlessly, or the word I use a lot is like abyss, like abyssally complicated and ambivalent and ambiguous. That's what I need fiction for. And I felt that in this book, Cleanness, several of the chapters or stories focus on teaching and on relationships with students. And I needed the tools of fiction to be able to kind of not solve that ambiguity or resolve those dilemmas, but to dwell in them with the fullness of my faculties and to try to think about them as well as I could. It also struck me that one of the issues that this initial relationship that we see struck up between the student and his teacher, one of the issues that it raises is this constant issues of boundaries. It seems like one of the burdens for the teacher is knowing precisely what boundaries he is not to cross because it is his responsibility to not cross those boundaries, of course. And then it seems like that is something that carries on through the book where it's a constant sort of push and pull across boundaries of sexual practice, boundaries of what is allowed to be performed in public and what isn't. Was boundariness or boundarylessness something that you had been thinking about when you were there? Well, I mean, it's something that I think anyone who teaches is aware of, and I think especially anyone who is queer and teaches is mm -hmm. aware of. Even in Ann Arbor, which was not an exceptionally homophobic place, 
it was clear to me really from the first day of teaching that I had to be intensely aware. I had to perform boundaries in a way that my heterosexual colleagues did mm-hmm. not. You know, many of my colleagues would think nothing of hugging a student. I had to think about that because I knew that there were ways that the fact of my queerness made me suspicious. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from the very beginning, I would never close a door when I was meeting with a student. I was so conscious of even the most innocuous touch, like even putting my hand on a student's shoulder. And all of that was just hugely intensified in Bulgaria, where the homophobia was so much more fierce. I do think queer people learn very early to sort of feel ourselves under constant surveillance in the ways that we interact physically with other people and what those interactions One, what they might be intended to mean, and then two, how they might be interpreted or misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. And so that question of boundary, you know, in that first chapter, Mentor, I think the narrator comes to feel that he has failed his student by being too respectful of his sense of boundary, that he has failed to give his student a kind of necessary comfort because even reaching out and putting his hand on on his arm to sort of reassure this suffering human he's faced with feels impermissible to him. And then in the last story, which to me is one of the most difficult stories, and which is called An Evening Out, that's a case where the narrator interacts with two former students who have come back after their first year of college. And he is ending his time at the high school where he's been teaching and he's ending his time as a teacher. And these students have kind of convinced him to set aside the boundaries of authority and convinced him. And also he's eager for it. I mean, these are students he genuinely likes. And I think that there's a kind of beautiful impulse in the kind of sociality they attempt to establish between themselves, the way that they attempt to set aside the roles that have structured their relationship and try to have something more, I don't know, more nakedly human between them Mm -hmm. to sort of be friends with each other and not just teacher and student. But the narrator finds that without those boundaries, he acts in a way that he fears may have caused harm. And that he has crossed boundaries that are necessary to his ability to be useful to, you know, these people who have been so important to him. And that's a devastating thing for him. And I do intend those stories to be in conversation with each other. And one of the ways that I think the book formally defeats the usual labels that like marketing departments put on books is that there are these nine chapters that are these, I think of them as centers or nodes of intensity. And then they are put into a relation, a kind of charged relation with each other that is not the relation of chronology or the cause and consequence of plot, but is instead these kinds of mirrorings, these kinds of echoes and reversals. And that feels to me less a narrative structure than really a musical one. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Garth Greenwell, whose new book is Cleanness. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. 
We have Celine Siema in the studio with us today. She is a filmmaker. Her latest movie is called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And she's here to recommend a film or a book for us. Celine, what book are you going to recommend or film? Well, I would recommend, I'm going to recommend something French. Great. The whole body of work of uh, our greatest novelist, whose name is Virginie Despentes. Mm-hmm. She made a trilogy called Vernon Subtext. And she also wrote a, a strong feminist book called King Kong Theory. And she's not known enough here in the U.S., so you should look at her work. I think she's recently been translated, so we might be in luck. So, would you say the name of the book again and the author? Virginie Despentes, Vernon Subutex. Great. Thank you so much, Celine. Thanks. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Garth Greenwell, author of Cleanness. It is symmetrical, I would say, probably, like, as a musical piece might be. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, Well, and, and, you know, that's the thing, I think, that story collections, for instance, often do or can do in this interesting way, which is that there, of course, a lot of of the resonance in a short story collection is about the placement of the stories. And often, you know, there's a whole other kind of implied or implicit tale in the way that stories are put together in a collection. And and something about this book that made me think that these were stories is um, because of the way that they're told. Because there's a, there's a very, even though you're able to kind of zoom, zoom back or it's not, it's not quite recollection, but we get the sense that, you know, some of, some of what's in here is being remembered, but there's a way that the narrative is very insistently in the present, like, and in one moment and like a super, super compressed. And that to me is more of a classic short story form in that, you know, where that there's like a short episode kind of standing in for a whole and so I, I wanted to ask you just about formally writing from that space, you know, staying with scenes, you know, staying in time, not, not darting around and really tracking time in a, in a kind of closely watched way. And, and then, of course, that kind of, that epiphany is always a part of that. You kind of have to have some, in a story like that, you have to have something happen but because it's such a short amount of time, how do you make something happen? So I, I just want to talk a little bit about how, you know, your sense of measure as you compose these stories and how you kind of knew when you'd reached a place where something had, had been achieved. I love that description of the book. You know, so my first education in art was in music. My second education was in poetry. And um, I mean, I spent 20 years writing poetry, kind of identifying as a poet. And then, you know, I wrote What Belongs to You. It was the first fiction I'd ever written, and I I had never taken a fiction class or a fiction workshop. And so, you know, a lot of the tools of sort of traditional, I don't know, like, you know, realist fiction are just not in my toolbox. And instead, I have these tools of the lyric. And a lot of the way that I think my books inhabit time or my sense of scene inhabits time is really quite lyric that, you know, my sense of what the technology of a scene can do is to sort of 
freeze a very densely charged moment and try to unpeel its densities, try to kind of unpack all of the information it, it, can, it contains. You know, time in the book, you know, time was key to my sense of the book's structure. The first thing that I understood about the book when I understood it was going to be a book had to do with time. I realized it was a book when I wrote, um, I think this was the third or fourth chapter that I wrote. And it was the first thing I wrote after finishing What Belongs to You. And it was the first thing I wrote after coming back to the United States. It was the first thing I wrote in Iowa City. And that's the second chapter, which is called Gospodar, which tells this very intense story of a sadomasochistic encounter in which the narrator is the submissive partner. And... When I finished that scene, I knew that I had to write a companion scene that would similarly tell an SM encounter, but from the perspective of the dominant. That, you know, it would be years before I wrote that, which is now the second to last chapter, which is called The Little Saint. It would be years before I wrote it, but the fact that Gospodar called into existence this other story also called into existence the structure that would hold them. And the earliest thing I knew about that structure was that the center of it, the three chapters or stories that make up the center, they tell the story of this transformative love relationship the narrator has with a man named R, who also appears in the third section of What Belongs to You, a kind of relationship that he had thought he could never have. Um, and that transforms his sense of himself and transforms his sense of the world. And I knew that I wanted that story to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, that it would be chronological. But I also knew that by the time we reached that story, so that by the time the reader had moved through the, the first three stories in the book, that they would know the whole arc of that relationship, mm-hmm. that they would arrive at the story called cleanness that that tells the beginning of that relationship, knowing that it would end, knowing that it would be devastating for the narrator, knowing that he would have to sort of learn to navigate a world that had been transformed by a love he had lost. And so I knew that the first and third sections of the book would not be chronological, that their organization would be something different. Yeah. And then, you know, thinking also about time and what you say about scene, I mean, I think it is basically my MO to this point, writing fiction, you know, the, the central chapter of cleanness kind of complicates this, the chapter called The Frog King, which is the only thing I've written that has been in fragments, in sort of shorter scenes. Almost everything else, my scenes are kind of long takes, and they inhabit moments for a very long time. And, you know, I think of that as being, you know, kind of a Jamesian maneuver, like Henry James, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I love about him is the feeling that he is inhabiting a scene and kind of wringing it dry, like totally, getting every yeah. little bit of meaning out of it. And so that's something that appeals to me, you know, the feeling that a writer has gone all the way to the bottom of something. And I do think that often means uh, it requires a certain kind of patience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, I, you quote Henry James, I think at a certain point in the book, when you say it's during the protest and um, everyone's hanging fire. And this is a moment where you, the narrator finally understands what that phrase means. Let's talk a little bit about that, the SNM chapters, because one of the things that I thought was so fascinating was 
in public, it feels like there's a hyper-awareness of embodying a queer body, right? That there's certain things that you can do, it feels like, certain private gestures that can be performed, and then, but certain things that are completely off-limits in certain spaces. And then in the S&M chapters, it feels like something kind of breaks open in, within, within a space that is otherwise prohibitive in every possible way. And, but at the same time, the narrator in that first uh, S&M chapter really seeks to be nothing, seeks to be a whole, but simultaneously is like so fully embodied for so many pages. Seems like a very difficult thing to navigate as a storyteller because the impulses are so diametrically opposed, it seems like. How did you tear those impulses apart and into making it into a sort of a, a scene of, and a performance of sorts? Yeah, so, I mean, it is just my temperament to see when I look at human life, like I see like a series of double binds. Mm. And, you know, that's not a view of human life that I've argued my way into or that seems sort of logically necessary for me. It's really just my temperament. It's just how I view the world. And one of the things I wanted to think about in this book is the fact that one of those double binds is the fact that there is something in us that desperately longs to be clean. Mm-hmm. And that there is something in us that longs to bathe in filth. You know, I think that there are these huge elaborate systems of thought and feeling and legislation that have been predicated on the idea that we must valorize one of those impulses, the impulse to be clean. Mm -hmm. And that in order to be true to that impulse, we must brutally suppress or repress the other impulse, the desire to bathe in filth. You know, I, it is just a, a central belief of my life that nothing could come from repression and that whatever we repress will come back in devastating ways. And that if we become over attached to our desire to be clean, our desire to be pure, our desire for, for our own righteousness, that we will become engines of devastation. And one of the things that art lets us do, and I think that the space of an S&M encounter is a space of art. I think it's an aesthetically delineated space. It's a space that has a frame around it. Mm-hmm. And within that space, to be able to not repress desires that we have been instructed we must repress, to not repress our desire for filth. And one of the ways I think filth, a desire to be unclean, can be figured as a desire not to be, a desire for negation, which again, I think is something that is just hardwired in us. I think there is something in us that desires that peculiar ecstasy of our own destruction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I hope this book does is to look at those double binds, to look at those dichotomies of cleanness and of filth, of affirmation and of negation. And again, not to try to resolve them, not to try to um, 
solve them, but instead to try to find some way for them to be something other than an impasse, to try to make them productive, to try to make them productive of beauty, of sociality, of solidarity, of pleasure. You know, it does seem to me, you know, writing Gospodar, that second chapter, in which this SM encounter that begins consensually and then very slowly becomes something that I don't really have a word for. People have talked about what happens in that chapter as an assault or a rape. Mm -hmm. And I think that it can be seen that way. But also, that language feels inadequate to me to um, just the, the complexity of what's happening between these two men. Mm -hmm. But the narrator finds himself in a place where he feels sort of devastatingly at risk. What I hope happens in that story, which begins, as you say, I mean, the narrator, as he tells this man what he wants, he finds himself saying repeatedly, I want to be nothing, I want to be nothing. And then the last line of the story, after the narrator has been through this experience of really terror mm -hmm. and has escaped from it, and then finds himself devastated both by what he has experienced and by the self that has longed for that experience. The last line of the story is composing as best I could my human face. Mm -hmm. And in that, in his reclamation of his human face, I feel a kind of intense affirmation. And so, you know, this face that, you know, in negation, and this is something that is dramatized much more positively. Like, you know, the, the technology of S&M as, as a kind of technology of transformation, which I think it can be. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there is a, a kind of astonishing transformation that happens if, you know, the word faggot, which when my father called me a faggot when I was 14, I felt utterly demolished, utterly lacerated by that word. If then in a, in a certain kind of aesthetically delineated encounter, that same word spoken by a lover, that word feels not demolishing, but instead gives me access to a kind of rapture nothing else can. Mm -hmm. Like that seems to me an extraordinary technique of survival. And that S&M as a kind of aesthetic technology that it can perform that sort of transformation. You know, in Gospodar, the technology fails. In the second to last story, The Little Saint, the technology works. Yeah. And the narrator finds that by going as far as he can into negation, he arrives at something like affirmation. And so I hope what the book does is it looks at these dichotomies and it says, actually, cleanness is filth, filth is cleanness. I wanted to ask about um, setting, you know, the, there's this, you're saying, you know, this repression is, is so damaging and then, but it, you know, in a, in a different way, the repression will always kind of, um, find a mirror and it seems so interesting to me to be setting these stories in Bulgaria in this completely re repressed atmosphere and you know just the hint that you might have been able to kind of access your childhood or childhood experiences of repression or negative attitudes towards queerness and homosexuality there 
in, in that other country, you know, that it, that it, it gave you this chance to maybe uh, reflect on, on your past. Uh, did, did you find that to be true? I did find that to be true. I mean, I sometimes say that um, I think the reason I had to write What Belongs to You was because I was writing sentences that began in Bulgaria and ended in Kentucky, and I didn't understand why. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent much of my life running away from a childhood in a world that very much wanted me not to exist. And it is very, one of the mysteries of my life is that I arrived in Bulgaria, which seem one way seems about as far from Kentucky as one can get. And it was there that I found myself, you know, confronted with a past I couldn't keep running away from. But, you know, while it's true that both Kentucky in the 1990s and 1980s and Bulgaria in the 20 teens are repressive places, you know, they're also places of extraordinary vibrancy and they're places of, you know, actually very vibrant queer community. And I guess, you know, one of the things that I hope um, my work can do is to kind of call out the inadequacy of some fairly familiar stories we tell about queer experience, about what repression means, about what it means to acknowledge shame, um, and also about like what Eastern Europe is, what Kentucky is, to sort of, I mean, it is just my conviction as a human being that the cultural narratives we tell about these things are inadequate, and that one of the reasons they're inadequate is that they are unaccommodating of ambivalence, ambiguity, and doubt. And that, you know, we flatten the experiences of these places in order to tell stories that are immediately and easily legible. And art, to me, I mean, the whole reason we need art is because it is a space in which we can fully engage ambivalence, ambiguity, and doubt. And that means it is a space where we can fully engage a kind of thinking that feels to me um, adequately human and adequately humane. Something that as you were talking about the sort of duality between cleanness and filth, you know, it occurred to me that the book can be read in a Christian sense, that there's a form of religiosity in it that the narrator struggles with, sometimes openly and explicitly. Uh, He talks about going to a priest in Boston. But, you know, you just said, as you said, uh, that chapter is called The Little Saint, the second S&M encounter. Is there something... I mean, potentially about the religious experience or religion and Christianity, I think in particular, offers a way of both um, communion and obliteration of cleanliness and filth, that it, it really allows for that, those things to exist at the same time, but at the same time is and can be wildly repressive in its form. Well, one, are, are you religious? And two, was that something that you were thinking about or battling with? So I am like a a stridently, affirmatively, joyfully atheist person. (laughs) And, you know, and it's always a surprise to me when people point out the extent to which religion runs through my work and is kind of everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not something that I actively think about, but it is true. So when I was doing my Ph.D., I was obsessed with theology. My dissertation was going to be on 20th century poetry and theology. And, you know, what you say about religion as being accommodating of 
cleanliness and filth and of sort of the whole human person. You know, I don't think orthodoxy is, but I do think there are research, and I think orthodoxy is, uh, um, I mean, I think orthodox Christian, certainly institutional Christianity, but even I would say the structure of thinking that is orthodox Christianity is just devastating. I think just mm-hmm. devastating for humanness. But there is, you know, this subterranean tradition, not so subterranean at times, of mysticism and of mystical thought and of apophatic theology or or what's sometimes called the via negativa. And I think it's precisely that rhetoric, the rhetoric of the via negativa, which is a rhetoric of trying to think negatively. I mean, the, the sort of Cliff Notes radically simplified version is that there is a conflict between language and God because language is finite and God is infinite. Mm. And so anything we can say about God in language must be false. And therefore we cannot make a positive statement that God is X, Y, or Z. Instead, we have to say God is not X. But then that's problematic because if we say God is not X, we have also limited God. And so we have to say God is not not X, but Mm -hmm. that's problematic because that also limits God. And so we have to say God is not 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 X. And so it's this way of trying to think about absolute questions, trying to think about um, these things that I'm talking about, these sort of irresolvable double binds in a way that is sort of endlessly mobile, that looks at impasse, you know, this is, there are finite things and infinite things, and we're trying to make some meat and we can't make some meat. You know, I mean, this is the magic mystery at the heart of the, of the embodiment of Christ, right? Of the incarnation. You know, we can't make the finite and the infinite meat. And so what do we do with that problem? I am someone, I'm an atheist, but I am someone with a devotional temperament. I think much of the weird shape of my broken life is the shape of someone with a devotional temperament looking for an object of devotion and finding mm-hmm. that there is no object adequate to devotion to one's impulse to devote oneself. But this, you know, the rhetoric of the via negativa, or I might say the technology of the via negativa that um, makes impasse, that impasse between the finite and the infinite, the infinite, which I might figure not in God, but instead in limit experiences of art or of sex, Mm -hmm. the limit experience of sadomasochistic sexuality, which is a kind of ecstasy that threatens the self with nothingness, that like out of that dilemma, one can make something that is productive, like one can't resolve it, one can't solve it, but one can keep it mobile by saying not, 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 in a way that allows one to look at it again and again from different angles, to theorize it differently, to put it in different kinds of narratives, to try to look at it in all of its facets. And then one does find, I think, as the mystics found, as you know, I think in both Gospodar and The Little Saint, in radically different ways, the narrator finds that somehow by instead of attempting to repress negation, one instead sort of commits oneself, devotes oneself to negation to sort of see where it can take one, that one finds there somehow something that seems like affirmation. Mm-hmm. Garth, do you think you'll return to... Uh, Bulgaria and, and Sofia again, or is this book your last time there? So I I, I do think uh, for now um, these two books. You know, as I was finishing Cleanness, I felt 
my imagination kind of detached from Bulgaria or I felt like, you know, I had said what I needed to say, what I had to say about this place, um, which was very mournful. And Mm -hmm. the chapter Decent People, which is the third chapter of the book, is the longest chapter in part because I knew it was the last thing I was going to be writing about Sofia, and it's an attempt kind of to say goodbye to the city. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that the next book I write will be set in the United States, but, you know, Bulgaria was such a profound experience for me and such a profound experience of love, love for a place, love for my students and friends there that, I mean, it's certainly like it's never a place that I will be finished with as a human being. It's uh, Sofia is still my my favorite place in the world. It's the city I love best. Thank you so much um, for writing this book and, and sharing some of that love with us. And thank you for speaking with us today. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I was going to joke that this has been a not, 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 not conversation with Garth Greenwell. <laughs> Maybe we'll keep that in. Totally. <laughs> thank you so much, Garth. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 